I'm Jorgen Sundberg, and you're listening to SM Know How, the Link Humans podcast. Today, we're going to talk about how brands can go from survival to significance. I'm here with Jeremy Waite, the author of From Survival to Significance, as well as the head of digital strategy at EMEA for Salesforce Marketing Cloud. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Jorgen. Right, thanks for having me. You know, you're welcome. This is going to be a, it's going to be a fun chat. We sat here on the, the 26th floor of Salesforce Tower overlooking the city. It's a pretty fine view and a very happy Friday afternoon. So you recently published a new book, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about the book and, and also describe the five levels of brand leadership? Sure. So, so the book came about by accident. You know, I, I read an awful lot. I, I love to read magazines. I, watch, I read a, maybe a book or two a week, and I watch a lot of TED Talks and a lot of Bloomberg and all the sort of stuff that we both enjoy, you know. And, and one of the things that I was seeing was that there was always a lot of talk about leadership, and it was about personal leadership, and you've got all these coaches that are trying to help you be better in your professional and personal lives, but not as many people talked about brand leadership. Like, what does that mean? How do you get a brand to be better than it is? And at what point do you achieve success or anything more? And Like, how do you measure that? Something we've been trying in social media for years, right? So I was listening to people like Rick Warren, who wrote Purpose Driven Life. I talk a lot about purpose-driven brands that we'll come to later. Um, leadership coaches like John Maxwell, John C. Maxwell on Twitter. Um, great leadership guy, New York Times bestselling author, written a ton of stuff, um, about 85 books or so, and he talked about personal leadership as well. And as I start thinking about this, I was like, well, there probably is these three levels that brands go through when they're trying to succeed. Then they start off in survival mode, and then they become successful when they try and figure out what it is that they're doing, and they put all the metrics in the right place, they create good content, they speak to their customers in the right way, they start to get the sales in order and measure it properly. And then for some brands, there are very few, they may achieve a level of significance where they stand for something more than themselves, and that's where you have these ridiculously loyal brands, you know, like Tom's and... Patagonia and that kind of stuff. So um, talk about that in a book. But basically what happened is I started to break this down. The book was really just going to be a whole load of blog posts tied together. I just thought it would be fun, right? Um, so I like creating stuff. I really just wanted a nice hardback book that I could give to my mum. And this is like all of my favorite articles in one place. And as I started piecing all of these things together, I noticed that every brand that I've worked with and studied over the last sort of 15, 18 years has gone through a similar process. And some go through that process a lot faster than others. Some don't always go from survival to success to significance. They go from survival to success to survival to really bad survival to then significance. I mean, Apple might be a great example, mm. right? They're about three months away from bankruptcy, not long before they asked Steve Jobs to come back. So as I started doing this, I thought, actually, you know, maybe there's a story in this that's not been told before. And maybe there are levels of leadership that apply to brands that could apply to, um, you know, that could apply to companies that in the past we've only thought applied to people. So I started mapping all of this down and trying to categorize all the different blog posts, all my favorite stories, my favorite authors. And I noticed that there was exactly five. So I started to build those out about a year ago. Um, and essentially what they are really quickly, you can read about them in the book. Um, but you have this level of survival where um, it's, like, it's called the location level. People follow you because they have to. 
they follow you because of where you are. It's about place, right? So a utility company, maybe a bank, maybe a mobile provider, maybe a broadband provider. You haven't got a relationship with them. You might not necessarily like them, but for customer service or because of the location of their store, um, maybe a supermarket, um, that's it. You follow them because you have to. So that's in survival mode. And typically the behavior on that level is where everyone's trying to compete against everyone else. It's all market share. They're just measuring likes. They're just throwing everything out all over the place, measuring every single metric that they can push content all the time, discounts, promotions, deals, you know what it's like, right? We see that in social all the time. But then something interesting happens and they start to become successful when they say, actually, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't measure everything. Maybe we should only measure our customers or our unique customers or our unique conversations. Maybe we should start filtering out all of this noise and only measuring the important stuff and starting to have a conversation. So like... You know, Vaynerchuk and Solis and, you know, Sinek and all these guys that are advocates for how do you build um, customer companies. You know, Mark Benioff talks about that a lot. It starts to flip. So it's not about the content anymore. It's about the conversation. And that's where I believe a brand starts to become successful. So that's where you've kind of got this level of where people follow you because they like you. Right. So there's a there's a certain position that comes with that. And then really success kind of I break down into three levels and say, well, they follow you because they like you. Then you go to a leadership level where people follow you because of what your brand has achieved. And that might be measured by ROI because it's commercial success. You've done amazing stuff. You've performed well. Your marketing's done well. You're measuring the right stuff. You're making money. People like that. Employees are inspired, you know, so they want to work with you. Um, and that might be the commercial level of leadership. But then there's a level above that that I think is the highest level of success, which is where people love you, right? And this is where you've got a genuine emotional connection with a brand and you start to become loyal with them. So this isn't like um, where they follow you because they like you on Facebook or they follow you on Twitter. And they may, um, you know, your favourite football team, it might be your favourite fashion brand or your favourite actress or sports star. This is where there's a genuine connection because you love them because of what they've done for you, right? Um, and you can do all of that on your own. This is where you start to measure customer satisfaction. You've got people like KLM, they're just doing incredible um, customer service, great experiences, they're measuring everything properly, NPS, customer service resolutions. And that's about as good as you can get on your own. Now what happens, there's a level above that, but companies can't get there on their own by putting in a good strategy or by buying expensive technology. Um, you can only get there by your customers putting you there. And I believe that's a level of significance where you've got a cause or a belief and I'm trying to take this one stage further than, than Sinek talked about years ago when he talked about, you know, what's your purpose? Mm. Why'd you get out of bed? I'm like, well, there's a stand. Because it's not enough to have a purpose. You've got to stand for something now. And what you stand for is more important than what you sell. And it's that, whether it's philanthropy, whether it's giving back, whether it's some kind of foundation model, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg trying to create internet.org or it's Patagonia giving away all of its profits or Salesforce giving away all of its time and product. You know, that's a level where people are genuinely inspired by that company. And regardless of what happens, they're incredibly loyal. And they're always going to love that company regardless of price. And they're going to start causes. They're going to start groups. They're going to write books about them, even if they don't work there. Um, so the book, essentially, for me, is what are those five levels? How do you get from one level to the next? What the tactical things you can do to get there? And then the book ends with a handful of stories about companies that I believe are significant and it's a debate right because it's my opinion this is sure. the fun bit 
and this is why this is a, as a social thing this is where it really gets down into the exciting stuff for me hopefully this opens up a conversation about I agree with that don't agree with that Uber's not successful Uber's Uber suck because of the way that they're doing but that's good because that's a conversation at the moment we're not having enough of and uh, so can you just repeat the five five levels again so can list them. Yeah, so, so we've got the location level is level one. Yeah. The like level is followed uh, level two. The leadership level is level three. You've got level four, which is all about love. And the ultimate level, level fifth, is about loyalty. Oh, okay, so I see. So the first one is survival, and then two, three, four are exactly. success. So and when, number when five you're fighting for survival, they follow you because they have to. And then you go from like, lead, to love. And that's a level of success. And right. that's where most of the case studies happen when we talk at conferences. We see the blog post written about, well, this is what Zappos did. This is what Southwestern did. And we've heard the same case studies a million times. That's all a level of success. What a lot of people don't talk about is the level above that, where you've genuinely got some kind of mission or Significance. Course. Significance. Yeah. What, what if you achieve significance as as a brand, as a company? What impact will that have on on other things such as your employer brand, your ability to attract and recruit the right people, even social selling, advocacy? Um, so it's a really good question. I've been asked this a bunch of times already because there's two ways to answer this. The first way is that the top level is about loyalty, and from a marketer's point of view, if we kind of put our strategic hats on, we could. We could really talk about how it's six times cheaper to keep a customer than to get a new one. And if you've got levels of loyalty, like Kevin Roberts from Saatchi talked about this back in 2005 in his book Love Marks, um, about loyalty beyond reason. People will buy from you regardless of what price you are because they're genuinely loyal. They will always buy Levi's, they will never buy Wranglers. You go and speak to cowboys, they'll always buy Wranglers and never buy Levi's. There's a level of loyalty there that's very specific, it's very tactical. But the other side, which is where it gets a little bit fuzzy, is what you're kind of saying is if you do have a cause and if you are trying to have some kind of philanthropic vision, you are trying to create these profits with a purpose. And the founder of Patagonia said exactly the same thing. We want to make a lot of money, but we want to make a lot of money so we can give a lot of it away. And the more we make, the more we can give away. The challenge is, is it possible to measure the fact that if you have a cause and you give more away, you're going to make more? Because Bill Gates famously said years ago, and it's obviously easy for him to say that, being one of the richest guys in the world, that the more I give away, the more I seem to get, which is a nice kind of spiritual vision. Um, I think if we kind of go too much down that foxhole, we're kind of missing the point. So the loyalty side, I think, is very tactical. Love our customers, love our employees, measure employee satisfaction, measure customer satisfaction. But that kind of touches on the top level of success as well. What I want to do is say that there's a level up here where it's not so much about measurement and it's not so much about all these tactical things that we've done in the past. It's about legacy. It's about what are people going to remember in 20 or 30 years' time? You know, or When you're gone, people are going to sum up your life in one sentence. What are they going to say? What's the one-liner that they're going to say about your brand? And they're not going to talk about, oh, Nike's got amazing customer satisfaction. Their NPS score is five times better than the industry average. They're not going to say that. Somebody might remember... Oh, damn, did you see that Nike did that amazing initiative in Ethiopia where they're trying to solve healthcare issues and spending a fortune to invest in adolescent, you know, in, in teenage girls? And there's a whole story there that doesn't get told, mm. but yet we get consumed with maybe the darker stories of, no, well, let's talk about Nike, the bad brand, or let's talk about sweatshops or ethical trading. It's like, no, no, I think there's really positive stories that we don't hear enough of. And... Uh 
I think in your book you mentioned a few examples of where brands have, have gone wrong. Can you um, list any of those and uh, what, what can others learn from? <laughs> um, I, I, I can list a few, yeah. And this was a really difficult one, actually, because it's a very touchy subject as well. And, you know, I work for an incredible brand myself and the, just the size of our company, we deal with an awful lot of people. So we're going to cross paths with a lot of people. So I was trying to be very sensitive. And it's, it's a difficult as an author, right? How do, you, sure. how do you stay authentic and credible and try and call people out whilst at the same time not upsetting people? And I went back and I had a look at it. I used an example of BlackBerry just because I worked with BlackBerry years ago. And BlackBerry were incredibly successful, had a phenomenal market share, dropped through the floor. And they've now got a great CEO that's trying to take them back up again. But I thought the probably more authentic story... Please that tell me in command for a function <laughs> Keep going. Fantastic. That's our TV, our smart TV talking to us. Um, phones for You. I was the head of social for Phones for You for a while. And um, they did some amazing stuff. And while I was there, we became the biggest telco brand in the UK. And we did all these sorts of wonderful things and strategies in place. But, but where the, are they now? Exactly. Where are they now? They're gone. So I talk about them. And I feel like I've got a view because I can talk about them because I've been there. And also, I'm, you know, they're not around anymore. So they obviously did a lot of things wrong. So it kind of, you know, the, the future is kind of played out as we thought. But phones for you were interesting because they had a very, very transactional view of customers. And it was very much kind of click to buy. It was all money spent on search and display. It was very much kind of how do we create an action to get someone to upgrade their phone or buy more data or to change their plan or can we find a way of upgrading them before their plans and stuff. And, and it's obviously it's an incredibly competitive landscape in telco. And Phones for You was doing some really good figures for a while. But I think it goes to show that transactional relationships just don't play out. Whereas loyalty does. Loyalty, you're in it for the long term. Transactions is very, very short term, ROI driven, let's make some more cash tomorrow of you. And essentially, that was a downfall of Phones for You. You know, they didn't invest in customer service. They didn't invest in loyalty. They didn't provide the best customer experiences. It was a very transactional experience to go in one of their stores and to try and buy the phones. Even though you may have got a phone cheaper in their shop than anywhere else, you may have gone in you know, wanting to get a cheaper Samsung and you end up walking out with an iPhone. But, you know, I think that's typical of a brand in survival mode, fighting for market share, trying to buy attention and eyeballs, cheapest deal, discounts and promotions, and exactly, you know, where are they now? They fell over. <laughs> yeah, it must, must, be, must have been difficult to, to run a, a social program in a company that's really just looking at transactional values and so on. Because it was, but that was the most beautiful part, really, of being in that bubble at the time, because Facebook was exploding, you'll remember yourself, mm. we're back, this is sort of the years of 2009, 10 and 11, everyone was running around talking about Syncat's reports, what's the value of a like, brands are investing the moon in Facebook, thinking they're building up these huge communities where they can reach all their fans and they're going to be worth a fortune in the future. And then Facebook's kind of gone, ah, just kidding. So now you've got to pay to go and reach them all and all these people that you've now got hold of. It's not really organic after all. And then we had the whole thing with e-commerce. Everyone, we're going to have all of our e-commerce pages are going to live in Facebook. Nobody leaves the Facebook ecosystem and there's now this walled garden. And, um, and it was just a really, really interesting space. And what we were trying to do was create valuable experiences by essentially building apps in fact, you might want to talk about 60, 30, 10 later on because yeah. one of the best lessons I ever learned came out of the way that we built our campaigns at Phones for You. And my attitude was just, how do we give the best possible experience for someone while they're on Facebook for those few moments, knowing that at some point in the future, 
they're going to think better things of phones for you. And this is just traditional marketing, right? Awareness, consideration, preference, are they more likely to buy, recommend to their friends? It's just that we did that by providing very, very compelling and engaging apps and games um, within a Facebook app, uh, which at the time worked incredibly well. It doesn't work as well these days because it's more complicated, but mm. it was a great learning curve. So tell us, how do you build a successful conversation strategy on, on social and, and digital in general? So that came out of the phones for you thing as well, really, because we ended up working with people like Vodafone. Um, there was models that I started to see some of these big brands putting into place. And, you know, they really wanted to figure out not only how do we reach our customers faster and how do we understand what our customers are saying. And part of that's a technology problem. But really, the bigger problems are all people problems, and they're all internal. Mm. So I started to see, and you know, this again isn't new news. You talk about silos, and you've got teams that don't speak to each other, technology that don't speak to each other, hashtag data that's coming in from different sources that you can't match up, and still, you know, brands have got massive problems with all these silos. So what I started to see, and then I started to talk about this a lot publicly, that maybe you shouldn't have a social media strategy. Maybe you shouldn't have a customer experience or you know, some kind of mobile strategy. What if, because what was happening is each team was taking ownership of it mm. and the team that didn't have ownership, so say it was marketing, brand or PR, but, you know, the social strategy might be doing amazing things around LinkedIn that could have huge benefits for employees. HR should be involved in that. Yeah. But the HR team were like, well, we, we don't want to get involved in that because it's a marketing thing and we don't get bonused on it, so we're not going to do a thing. So I was like, I'll tell you what we should do. Let's, let's call this a conversation strategy. And let's have this virtual team where people meet together, whatever it is, either face-to-face or virtually, once a week, once a month, doesn't matter, but there's a regular thing, and one representative from every single team comes armed with the one metric that really matters to their team, whatever that is, and there's obviously a consulting process that you would go through to figure out just what that one number is. It's almost like the Moneyball number, because everybody's got one number. There's millions of things they need to measure, but there'll always be one thing that moves it, no matter what department you're in. And the conversation strategy was, well, let's get representatives from each team. If that's just five teams, that's fine. We've got operations. We might have HR, sales. It might be digital. It might be brand and PR. Um, And then you have one guy coming. So the brand and PR guy wants to talk about awareness and eyeballs and reach. The digital guys want to talk about click-throughs to the website, conversions, downloads of a thing. Sales guys just want to talk about, you know, Sales. Who converted customer service, resolutions, did we respond on the first channel, did we respond fast enough, what was the outcome of that, you know, NPS scores. So the conversation strategy for me was a way of let's shift this away from marketing because it's not about marketing at all. This is digital transformation, to call you a word that I hate. It's like what happens when all of this stuff joins together, um, whether you're a social enterprise, whether you call it a customer company. It's like marketing's too important to be left to the marketing department. So let's find a way to get every other team involved. Because then what's going to happen, there's a beautiful outcome of that, that HR start to love the marketing team. Operations start to understand why social media is really important. Then you start to get more budget. Then you start to measure things better. And then when things get tight, which they always do at some point, marketing budget's not the first thing to get cut because everybody understands the value of it and you feel Mm. like you're playing as a team. So for me, there's a really, really strong story in that that's beneficial for any company. And in your opinion, out of all those departments, who should take the lead? Who should own social? Um, 
Gosh, I don't know. We had a debate yesterday at a conference I was at that the word social should even be canned, and we've been talking about that for a long time. Fair the, enough. There's still this ongoing debate around, is it social media versus social business, which seems a bit redundant. And, and like my official title is head of digital strategy. And like digital, like everything's digital now. That, that yeah. word shouldn't even exist. Um, it's a marketing function. It always should be. It's about people. Um, there's going to be a CMO who's in charge of the the emotional side of the business and how to reach people faster and how to understand what they've said and social obviously fits perfectly within that. The bit that I see where it starts to get blurred is when you look at it from a, a tactical point of view, social isn't that sales channel that we thought it was back in 2010 because it looks like you've got the huge reach and the massive audiences yeah. but yet it didn't convert because that's not what people went onto social for. They went to see the photos and chat with their friends and look at bulldogs and you know do whatever stuff that they do. Um, and it's a customer service channel and that's where we're seeing massive successes now it's a conversation channel it's a way to engage it's a way to build a trusted relationship it's a way to enhance your credibility as a company and look like you're you know you're real people behind the brand and customer service has got the, is going to be the biggest benefactors of that so that's where for me service and marketing need to be plugged together yeah. and social is in that little Venn diagram in the middle where it overlaps so to say it lives exclusively on one side or the other wouldn't be fair. You need a CMO that understands that social impacts everything now. Mm. Okay. Yeah, so we've touched on it already, but uh, do enlighten us. What's, that? What's the rule <laughs> of 60, 30, 10? So this is a great one, um, and this is one of my favorite things. I stumbled upon this by accident. Um, I wrote a whole LinkedIn post about it, and I was kind of... I was flippantly claiming that 60-30-10 was the new 80-20 rule, you know, the Pareto principle. You spend, you know, 80% of your time on 20% of the thing or 20% of your sales or 80%, you know. So you, you, that story, we all know that pretty well. I started to look at the way that brands split their money and the way that brands split their time. Coca-Cola have got a 70-20-10 model, which is about immediate priorities, medium priorities and then the long term blue sky crazy thinking um, 10% of their time and they structure their time very specifically so I started to look at that and think well what are the three priorities that we've got as a business and any business whether it was back from phones for you whether I'm working at Adobe whether it's me consulting with brands at the moment you can usually break it down to three things um, in 2015 Gartner's actually saying that the three biggest priorities for CMOs is number one growing profitable revenue Number two is connecting with your customers faster. And number three is dealing with competition in the marketplace. And, and whatever that is, that could change for every company. If you're a CIO, it's going to have a different skew than that one that Garner said for the CMO. But what I was thinking is if you could try and break things down to three simple things, well, then what happened if we would break it down into priorities? 60, 30, 10. So if we are a brand that needs to make money, well, 60% of our time, money, effort, and resources should go towards how to build profitable revenue. Maybe 30% of our time is invested in customer insights and understanding what customers want and the demographics and the data to reach them faster. And maybe 10% is invested in competition in the marketplace or competitive intelligence. So that'd be a good example of taking Gartner's report, putting it in 60, 30, 10. Where it becomes really interesting when you're trying to break your money up, give you a really short story. Um, can't tell you the brand, but they were spending hundreds of thousands a day they were looking at trying to invest in Facebook strategies, and then it was like, well, we've got this money, we're going to do this campaign, where do we spend it? So obviously they go back to their agency, they get the data to try and tell them a thing. It's what do we spend on creative, and how much money do we spend to promote it? And then it's weeks and weeks and weeks go past. 
but we can't work like that anymore. We've got to be real time. Mm. We've got to be. We need to decide quick. Um, I used a really rough... I tried to figure out where Angry Birds spent their money when they exploded years ago, Rovio. And I read an article that talked about where some of the money went and how much it cost them to make it and kind of looked at the clicks that they were getting and tried to estimate kind of how many people they would have to reach. And it looked like it was 60-30-10. So 60% of the money had gone on media, 30% on creative. Because Angry Birds, when it was built, was only 100,000. It was a really cheap app to build. And then, um, proportionally, you know, as a yeah. the size that they are. Uh, and 10% was on strategy and insight. So I started to map this out. And every time I then went back to build a new campaign, and they said, OK, for argument's sake, we've got 100,000 to spend on this new campaign. Where should we spend it? Well, we'll go back to the agency. No, no, no. Let's not do that. Let's spend that 100,000, we'll put 60,000 into media, we'll put 30,000 into creative, and we'll spend 10,000 on strategy. And we'll split the 10,000 in half. We'll put half at the beginning to measure where the money should go, on what channel, what the app should be, or the creative and why. And we'll put you know, the other half of the 10,000 to measure it and to see the outcomes. Did it work? What was the ROI? What was the success? Could we report it? Can we do it again? Could we replicate it? If we can't, why? How do we learn? And it started to work. And I've seen that time and time again when you've got any marketing campaign. And obviously, this changes for everyone. So all the planners that might be listening to this are going to be shouting up and, and chewing their hats. But I think that as a starting point, it's the best model you could begin with. Because you've got to have create great creative content. But that might only be a third of your time. But the 60%, because social isn't organic, it's not free anymore. We've got to pay. And we've got to pay to hit the right channel. 60% of whatever budget you've got, paid media. doesn't matter, influence, outreach, blogger strategies, Facebook, Twitter, investing in search and display, wherever you spend it, it doesn't matter, but you know, obviously you're going to figure out the best return for the best channel for your brand, but the 10% to measure what worked and to figure out what to do in the first place. And I explained it quite a lot. There's quite a big section in the book that talks through that. But I still, I've been in the industry quite a long time and I still haven't seen a better model. So I'd be happy for someone to call me out on that and to make recommendations. But by all means, if, before you get the book, check out the LinkedIn post as well. Okay, great. We can make a note in the show notes, I guess, for the post. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll put a link in. Um, so let's take this back to uh, the profits with a purpose. So well, what, step by step, how do you create profits with a purpose? And perhaps do you have any examples of companies that have done this? Um. So I don't think it's a step-by-step guide because once you talk about profits with a purpose, that is something that has to be embedded within the culture of a company. Mm -hmm. You can't just say, and a great example might be a brand that says, right, we're going to attach ourselves to this charity or we're going to have this initiative that we're going to go out and support schools. Um, And it's almost a very tactical, transitional um, sorry, not transitional. It's um, transactional. transactional. It's a very transactional view of let's attach ourselves to a cause because it looks like the right thing to do. And that's CSR. You know, a lot of CSR policies are like that. What I'm trying to talk about is there has to be a giving mentality that's completely different. So it's not so much that you've got a step-by-step guide because really that's what CSR policy is. It's how do we figure out what it is that we're doing to make the world a better place and be responsible and all that sort of stuff. Um, because, and it's interesting stuff and we should all do it, but I think there's a level above that, that has to come from the founder. 
So whether or not um, you're, you know, even from Patagonia and you're talking about, well, let's give 10% of revenue or 1% of profits, whatever's greater, we're going to donate all of that to um, outdoor charities that we believe in, you know, whoever it is that he's investing in, you know, usually um, um, some kind of local charity around the mountains and stuff, the outdoor brands that he works with. Um, Mark Benioff, you know, the 111 model, we give away 1% of product, time and equity. And that came right from day one when the company was set up. That wasn't an initiative that we thought, well, we'll do that because it's cool and we've got a whole bunch of money. It was, you know, if we're going to make a lot of money, we need to make sure that as we scale, our giving can scale as well. Mm. And the reason I ended up writing the book when I was looking into it, and I'm not, you know, Charles Best from Donors Chew says, if you give away $1, you're a philanthropist. And I think there's this misconception that philanthropists have to be like Warren Buffett or George Soros and have billions of pounds before you're philanthropist. You give away $1 to the guy in the street, you know, you're a philanthropist. The issue with businesses, and you can look at philanthropy.org and, and there's a whole load of sites that you could go and find out these stats, but of all the money that's given in the world to do good stuff, only 5% of it is given by companies. And of the 5% that is given by companies... 80% of that is given away for tax reasons because it makes sense to do that because you can offset your tax against corporate giving and stuff. But that leaves a very, very, very small percentage of brands that are saying, we want our profits to have a purpose. You know, um, like I use the, it's a kind of a really cheeky anecdotal example, but Levi Strauss, you know, one of the biggest jeans brands in the world, one of the best socially connected brands, you know, huge company done incredible stuff, you know, patented the denim and he riveted the jeans together. He didn't want to do that in the beginning. He didn't want to go and make a ton of money, even though, you know, he left his family and he moved over to San Francisco in the middle of the gold rush in the early 1900s. He wanted to invest in universities, in scholarships and orphanages. And he was like, well, how can I do that? Well, how about if I set up a business? And then he saw that people's pants were ripping where they put their axes and stuff in. And then he, so he buys this new tent material. He makes this thing that ends up being denim. And then they figure out that they can rivet them together because they start to become torn. And his friend comes over and says, well, we can patent this. And, but I've got no money. So he says to Levi, you've got a bit of money because you've got a camping shop, even though you're not selling that much stuff. Do you want to pay for the patent? We'll split it 50-50. Levi's jeans are born. Now Levi starts to give away a ton of money and they're doing amazing things. And it came from, he wanted to make profits with a purpose, but his purpose came first. So now my challenge is, if you're making a ton of money, Fantastic! You need to put those principles in place. Um, but you've got to make sure it's authentic and your intent is correct. But the brands that are doing the best stuff, like Tom's, like Patagonia, like Levi's and Salesforce, even Nike, when you look at their foundation stuff, um, it happened on day one mm. because their company was built on a purpose and they knew what they stood for and everything else was like, that's secondary. I actually believe, provocatively, a lot of people don't agree with me on this, I believe Facebook's exactly the same. There's a reason why Zuckerberg's invested in so much money in internet.org. It makes no commercial sense at all for Facebook to do that at the moment. Mm. Transactional brand, short-term money, keep stakeholders happy. The, two th- the two-thirds of the world that internet.org is trying to connect are not going to spend any money on advertising. They've got no data plans. He's trying to make people access you know, Wikipedia by floating drones and giving Wi-Fi to everyone. I've seen a farmer that he can check his stock price and make more money to support his community. And that isn't a financially driven incentive. That's just we want to connect the world to make it a better place. Um, and we can be really cynical, as we should be, because it's Facebook. But, again, stories like that don't get told often enough, I don't think. And I don't think people like Zuckerberg and Internet.org get enough credit for that sort of stuff. 
Great. Thank you so much for your time today. Where can people learn more about your book and uh, where do you hang, hang out on social? How can people connect with you? Cool. So um, I've purposely not given it a website. Um, there may be people have offered to build one for it, so that may be in a thing at some point. I'd rather it's a conversation. So if you just search in any of your favourite channels, hashtag significant brands, something's going to pop up at some point. Um, I'm very active on Twitter, so that's probably the first place to go, just at Jeremy Waite. And the link to the book, whether you want hardback, softback, ebook, or whatever, is in my Twitter bio, so you can, you can check it out there. 100% copyright free. Um, 100% of the profits are going to code.org. None of them come to me, so for every book that we sell, up to five hours coding and computer science training are given away to primary school kids. So, um, so you're not just trying to make me rich if you buy the book. This isn't pimping a thing. This is... Well, you know, this is you're putting purpose before profits. I'm putting purpose before profits. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. Well exactly. done. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeremy. <laughs>